is the lamb who was slain holy holy is he you know one thing i'm sure of is when i get up to heaven i'll be able to sing like her and probably even better but my heart just waits to be able to do that to our great king can i have you all rise up as we just pray before i start Father God, we want to thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord, that as we think about him and as we study of him and, and to get to know the unplumbed depths of, of who he is, our hearts are filled with gratitude. And this morning, Lord, in the presence of your people, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal a little more of your son. Our hearts yearn for it. Our hearts hunger to know the one who gave his life for us. And so we come, Lord. We thank you that even as we stand here in the presence, we stand with that assurance that is found in Jesus Christ. We fill with wonder, awestruck wonder, at the mention of your name. And so we pray that you would be honored from all that we are and all that we have, that you'd be glorified indeed in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you be please? Would you please sit down? Eliezer Weisel was a Hungarian Jewish teenager. He was an observant teenager of the Jewish Talmud. And in the spring of 1944, the Nazis rolled into Hungary. It wasn't long before he and the rest of them were taken to the different concentration camp, and he found himself in the Auschwitz camp. And he writes about it in a book, The Night. Night, sorry, not The Night, Night. And he talks about experiences of God in light of evil and wickedness and, and uh, the darkness that was there in the Auschwitz camp. He writes particularly about an event where after work they return back into the camp and there are these three gallows, two men and a boy about to be hung. You see, they're, they're okay. They've become okay now with gas chambers, but these gallows, these public hanging, always disturb the peace of the camp. And hanging of a boy was a new low even for the Nazis. And the, in these gallows, they, as they stand, the noose was placed on their neck, their stool tripped, and the two men um, died instantly. But this young child whose body was malnourished did not have enough weight as he fell for his neck to break, and he was writhing there in pain for about a half hour. And what they would do is they would have all these inmates of the camp walk past so that they will see what will happen to those who stand against the Nazis. And as they were walking through that, uh, Eliezer talks about this man who was commenting behind him, asked, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, he says, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here from the gallows. You see, two questions are often asked when this evil and wickedness and this rampant uh, darkness seems to, sometimes it seems for us, it's succeeding. And the question is asked, where is God? Is God dead? Approximately 2018 years ago, on what we call today the Palm Sunday. Jesus came riding on the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem, and that was prophesied 
400 years prior before by Zechariah. In chapter 9 and verse 9, we read about it in particular. But Daniel had said about the very specific day on which it will be fulfilled. In Daniel uh, chapter 9. But this is what Zechariah 9, 9 says about the coming of the king. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I want you to understand that this rich imagery and symbolism that is happening here. Let me point out to you four things that that should strike us and catch your attention. One is that of the donkey. You see, the, the riding of a donkey, you must understand in this Middle Eastern culture, it's about the animal of peace as opposed to the horse, which is the animal of war. And Jesus comes riding for the prince of peace. What best on an animal that he can come riding on. He comes riding on a donkey, and, and the picture is that also of humility. He comes riding in. And then you have these palm branches that they use. The palm branches were, uh, were often depicted on coins in important buildings. It symbolized goodness and victory. Solomon had used it to, uh, to paint it on the walls and, and to engrave it on the doors of the temple. Uh, palm is used on Sukkot, the, the Feast of the Tabernacle, the seventh feast that the Israel, nation of Israel would, uh, would commemorate. They would live in in intense boots made of these palm leaves for seven days as if to say that is how our forefathers lived in the wilderness before we were brought into the promised land and they not just look back but they look ahead to the messianic kingdom that one day it'll be established when they will be fully uh, uh, when the messianic kingdom would would come in and the nation of israel had thought that this was the day this was the day that that they would have this deliverance from the Roman governance. It, it would have been 450 years since the nation of Israel have had their own king. Since the exile, except for a brief Maccabean period, they were not self-governing. And they thought that would be the day. And, um, but we know that was not to be, right? Not unless, not until we come to the end of the Bible and the book of Revelation. We read in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, listen to this, with palm branches in their hands. The Messianic kingdom will come, but not on that day. And on that day they sing Hosanna. Save us, that's what it means. Hosanna means save us, and it's borrowed from Psalm 118, which is called the Jesus Psalm, because it talks about the triumphal entry of the king uh, who comes into the city. And uh, they would lay their cloaks on which he would ride the donkey, and that's an indication of honor and respect. They would do that to 
to kings. We read about it in 2 Kings chapter 16 when Jehu had become the king. They laid their cloak and he walked over them. So all of this symbolism that is happening and they, they were hoping that this is the Messiah who would come and overthrow the Roman government. But what that was not to be. We know instead of going into the palace to overthrow, he goes into the temple to cleanse. And then after, he actually gives a lament about Jerusalem, saying this city is going to be destroyed. So there's no political deliverance. In fact, he talks about, about, uh, about destruction. And it's five days later when this Lord Jesus Christ is crucified. And so at, those, at that time when he's crucified, I wonder if the followers would have asked, what would happen if a Messiah dies? What do we do? A Messiah is dead. Is God dead? Now for the casual observer of the cross, it seems like wickedness has triumphed again, and this time finally. But, but his resurrection tells us no. It takes away every doubt that he is the victor over death and darkness and devil. I love this verse in Colossians, which says in chapter 2, verse 15, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's the devil and his army. And he puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's the one who's victorious. This king. And as the line on the popular song goes, God's not dead, he's alive. The one who they crucified, the one who they laid behind the stone, the one in the grave and rolled the stone, he rose victorious. That's about him I want to read to you today from the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, this is what we read. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to the one who loves us and has set us free from sin at the cost of his own blood and has appointed us as a kingdom, as priest serving his God and Father, to be, to him, sorry, be the glory and power forever and ever. That's Jesus I want to talk, to talk to you about. The one who rode into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. The one who is set to return now on a cross to claim his, uh, his throne. And this time he comes to war and to judge and to rule. And it's in that context of contrast that this chapter 1 will stand out to you in, its, in who Christ is. And so what we want to do, even as we look at chapter 1 today, we want to begin this new series. It's called The Seven Lessons from the Seven Churches as to, as to what Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, has to say to us uh, through, uh, through John and through Revelation. So as we read chapter 1, I want you to understand that there, is, there, is, there are things that are symbols and symbolism and there are things that are to be taken literal. There are literary, uh, literally, to take it literally. And so as we go through this, we will pause to make some observations. But I want you to see three things that are happening in this chapter. One is the revelation to John. And there's this reporting by John. And then there's the response of John. So there is the revelation. Then there is the reporting and then there's the response. Okay, you got these three. What are the three? First one is 
Revelation. Okay, that's the revelation to John. The second one is reporting. Reporting by John. And the third one is response. And this is what we need to, as we look at, and hopefully it will speak to us. All right, so first the revelation. I'm going to read from verses 1 to verse 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. The revelation of Jesus Christ with God gave him, that is Jesus, to show to his servants that the the things that might soon take place and he made it known by sending his angel to his servant john who bore witness to the word of god and to the testimony of jesus christ even to all that he saw blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near and from here on i'm going to request the uh, some member from the congregation to read aloud but uh, uh, we'll be going through chapter one but listen to this i want you to notice this is the revelation of jesus christ this is, this is God the Father revealing God the Son. This book is about the revelation of God's Son, about His glory and about His triumph. This book is prophetic, but it's not intended for prophecy alone, which means it's not just a means of understanding end times, but it's to know about Jesus Christ. God is interested that we know about His Son, Jesus Christ. Not clamor about end times. You see, the word apocalypse, I practice that word a long time, but apocalypse. If you look up the dictionary, apocalypse says the momentous, the catastrophic, and, you know, it's about destruction. But the word apocalypse actually means the unveiling, the unveiling, the revelation. And that is what this book is, the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice in verse 1 the faithfulness in transmission. What God the Father wanted to show about his son has been faithfully transmitted to us and it says there that he made it known uh, with God gave uh, him to note uh, to show his servants the things that must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant john he bore witness to the word of god and to the testimony of jesus christ even to all that he saw you see the objective of this letter is achieved we might have some doubts about how end times are going to pan out there are some theories of how things are going to go, and we can't seem to agree. But the objective of the letter is about Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is. And nobody can read this book and go away having any doubt about who Christ is. And so God meets his objective through the letter as he passes on to us. And from uh, uh, the second part of this is in reporting where we spend a little more time. Verses 4 and 5, if somebody can read that out loud. Verse 4 and 5 of Revelation chapter 1. Yes. Thank you. We'll, we'll continue with the later part. But I want you to understand that there is the Trinity in the greeting. The Trinity. So, one, we see God the Father. He who is and was and, and is to come. 
God is eternal. He was, he is, and is to come. And God is eternal. And in Christ, he will come at the end of history to judge and to save. So we have God the Father. But then we also have God the Son. We read from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's very symbolic. When you read the book of Revelation, you will see different titles given to the Holy Spirit. This is about God, the Holy Spirit. We read about him as one person in Revelation chapter 3, verse 6. We read about him as the seven spirits, which talks about the perfect perfection. We, we, we read about him as the seven torches of fire, as the perfection and holiness. We speak about him, we read about him as the seven eyes, as one who is omnis, omniscient and, and uh, who is omnipresent. That is God the Spirit. So you have God the Father who, who joins in. And there's God the Spirit, but there's also God the Son. And we read that he is the faithful witness. And we saw that he is faithful in his transmission in verse 1. We saw, and he made it clear. He made it clear in verse 1. In, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, we read that he is faithful in his testimony. We read there that he, before Pontius Pilate, made a good confession. Pontius Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. He was desperately looking for one. And he provides, he was faithful in his testimony. He is faithful in his exactness of the image of the Father. Philip is told in, in John 14 that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is a faithful witness. And not just that he is the faithful witness, but he is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the sovereign one over all earthly powers. He is the firstborn, it says. The, the king who was killed rose again, defeating death and the grave. And therefore I'm assured, because he rose again, that in him that I will rise again too. The first, firstborn among the dead. And not just that, he is also the ruler over the kings and the, uh, of the earth. Even, even the king over Caesar, the one whom John, uh, the one who exiles John to Patmos, as we see a little later. But then look at the adoration of what happens. If you read again verse 5 and, and verse 6, if you, you, you'll get the connection. So I want to request you to read 5 and 6 together. Amen. Look at that. He loves us. He says he loves us and has freed us. So that has loosed us. So he's loved us, he has freed us, and he has made us a kingdom, the priest of his God and Father. He has lifted us. He loved us, he loosed us, he lifted us. This is what Jesus Christ has made us to his God and Father. A, a, a kingdom corporately, an individual as priests. A kingdom and priest. This is what Jesus does. You see, th this was a privilege actually given to the nation of Israel. In, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, we see that the nation of Israel were called out, and they would have become the kingdom of priests, but they failed. 
and now he calls from out of every nations in the world to be people made to be a kingdom and priest. Then you, in verse 7, you see the oracle of God. These are the words of God. And I, if I got this right, the only other place where we read the words of God as being said is Revelation chapter 21. Uh, but verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, come. Amen. I'm not sure if in your, in your Bible, if it's given in parenthesis, it's like the divine intervention. Hey, hey, I need to stop you before you go ahead, as if God is saying that. And he says this, that he is going to come, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come in the clouds in us coming. And these are not just vapor clouds. You know, I remember growing up, I would, uh, on a day when I feel naughty and want to do something wrong, I'd look up and there are no clouds and all right, the Lord's not coming, I can do what I can do. But no, that was wrong. I don't know if you got what I did, but uh, I, I had reduced it to just mere physical cloud. And he is coming in glory. That's what that cloud is about. There are multiple references that this is about the clouds of glory. And that says, this will certainly come to pass. Amen. So be it. It'll certainly come to pass. And the confirmation of his coming is given again. It's as if the Lord Jesus Christ signs off, saying that I am coming. I want you to re read verse 8 and see what it says there. Amen, amen. The first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet is the Alpha and the Omega. What Jesus is represented is that he's the beginning of all history. He's the creator, and he's the goal for whom all things are made, that all history is moving towards to glorify him. The Alpha and the Omega, Christ himself gives this attestation that he is coming. What thrills my heart is that this message is given to John when he is in exile in the island of Patmos. It wasn't given to James, who was in Jerusalem, the leader, as it were, of the church in Jerusalem. It wasn't given to Peter, who is the apostle among the Jews, who made this good confession that, he, that Jesus is Christ. It's not given to Paul, who is this apostle of the Gentiles, the one who writes most of the, the New Testament. It's given not to John, when he sacrificially left his father and the boats to follow Jesus when Jesus called him. It wasn't, wasn't when he positionally was among the inner crowd, those, those three of the Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, nor was it on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw the glory of Christ, nor was it when he leaned on the bosom of Jesus uh, during the Last Supper, nor was it at the foot of the cross when he was the lone disciple, everybody, everybody else had gone away. This is when he is isolated. And in the island of Patmos, exiled. In verse 9 it says, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. For who he stood representing Jesus Christ, he is now being 
exiled. And I ask, my quest, I ask myself this question, so that exile, how does that apply to us? How does that, what does that mean to me? And, and I sense in, in one way, we are all exiles, aren't we? We are all exiles. We exile because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. I mean, there is an ostracization, there is this, you know, people uh, treat you like strangers or they treat you strange because you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And in another sense, we are exiles, really. Our, our hearts long for home. We want to be up home. And, and even on the song that we sang, we, 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 we're waiting to be with him. J.R.R. Tolkien, in Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, this is what he writes. We all long for Eden. We are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human is still soaked up with a sense of exile. What he was saying is, you know, we, it, it might seem like we are all okay, everything is going well here, but we still know we're not satisfied our hearts long for our hope. We are exiles indeed. And so we can take encouragement in this one fact that as we read this book, it's written to and through, the, through a person who is in exile. And so John gets the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ at a time when he is in exile. Isn't it true that there is something about our exile, our down moments that God uses to reveal of himself in unique ways. Especially when you're down and out, it seems God is teaching us the greatest lesson. I, I'll give you another example of when that happened. Uh, from the triumphal entry, I want you to go back another 450 years, and that will take us to the Babylonian exile. And at that point, it would have been 700 years since they've come out of Egypt. This was a nation that was created to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation, but they had fallen into idolatry. They had fallen into abject wickedness. They had fallen into defiant rebellion. And God, again and again through the prophets, was sending and warning, uh, warning him to say, listen, warning them to say, you need to repent, you need to relent, but Judah would not. And so Babylon comes. That's God's instrument of judgment. And again, as per prophecy, they come and they conquer Judah. Now Judah's magnificent temple lay in ruins, her riches plundered, her king blinded, and her people marched off in shame to Babylon. The book of Lamentation, we read the book of Lamentation, it details what happened during the siege. It talks about rape, humiliation, mockery, sacrilege, starvation, cannibalism, because mothers were boiling the babies for supper. They didn't have anything to eat. Kingdom of Judah. This exile would never be forgotten by this nation. You see, even today, they still chant the prayers in the Jewish community, among the Jewish community in August, which is the anniversary of this terrible event. And they would have asked this question, is God dead? Now I want you to imagine this with me as their thoughts as they walked into Babylon. They've been led exiles, they're captives, and they have to walk 
those thousand miles and more as they come into uh, Jerusalem. And I borrowed this from the Jesus Way written by Eugene Peterson. And he says about those grandeur of Babylon that would have made them look smaller than they felt. They, they would have contrasted the grandeur of Babylon to the ruins of the city that they left behind. They would have looked at wealth and glory they'd never seen before, much more than they could have ever imagined. They see the splendid warriors and who strolled the, the streets, the powerful military. They were truly a world superpower. You see, the vessels of the temple in Jerusalem were taken and were laid up in the temple of this Babylonian god Marduk. It is to indicate that Marduk has actually conquered Yahweh God. If there was ever a contrast, that's what it was. Judah in exile. Would they have thought, is our God dead? The one true God sends us in exile. But God's not done. <laughs> You see, he's not done because in that far place, far away place, when all seems to be lost, God does his wonderful work. You see, what kingdom of Judah had not learned in prosperity and in the promised land because again and again they would go into idolatry. They would sin against God. And, and as he takes them, plucks them, and takes them to this far off place full of idolatry and into this pagan world, as it were, there they learn. Never ever to worship idols. They learn in the midst of abject idolatry. You see, for our God, this is what it is. The heart of his people is more important that it be turned towards him. It's more important than a temporary setback that his people might suffer. But God wasn't done with Babylon either. Uh, I, the kingdom of uh, Judah, at the end of 70 years, just as it was prophesied, he brings them back to be established. But Babylon now is in ruins. We read about it in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 24, because they took advantage of his people going beyond what they were supposed to do. And so J Judah has been built up, those great, kingdom of Babylon lie, lay in ruins. And it is to this people, to these people in exile that Jesus is born. I want to read to you how Matthew puts it in Matthew chapter 1 verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to deportation, that's the exile that we were talking about to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, uh, to Babylon, to Christ, 14 generations. And so those who, were, who came out of the exile, it is to them Jesus is born. And Matthew very quickly points out that this Jesus himself suffered exile as Joseph and Mary had to run, flee, as it were, in the middle of the night to Egypt. And so this Jesus that we're talking about, he knows. He knows what it means to be a stranger. He knows what it means to be isolated. He knows what it means to be a stranger among his people and estranged from his own family. 
It is this Jesus who says, Foxes have holes, birds, birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This Jesus reveals himself to John, who is in exile. So I want, I want us to behold this Jesus. See the description that is given. So somebody will read from verses 12 to 16. 12 to 16. Would you read 17? Also, that's okay. We can come back to that. But I want you to understand, he calls himself the son of man. This is the son of man. That's his, his preferred designation, as it were, in the Gospels. We get this title from Daniel, the son of man. And then he talks about his hair like the, like the white wool, which talks about infinite divine wisdom. We read that in Daniel 7, 9, Leviticus 19, 32, Proverbs, and there, are, and there are verses. The eyes, they're like the flame of fire. He sees nothing. I mean, he, nothing is hid. He sees everything. And uh, as he says in chapter 2, to each of the churches, I know, he knows. Look at his feet. It's like the burnished bronze. To crush any opponents, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Hear his voice, like the roar of many waters. In Ezekiel's, Ezekiel 124, we read, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty. And see in his hands the seven stars, the seven angels of the churches, we read in Revelation 116. And then he has the two-edged sword, God's word, which searches hearts and judges rebels. Look at his face, shone like a sun shining at full strength. And he says, I'm the first and the last, which, which affirms his divine eternity. And then he says this, I died. I died, but I'm alive forevermore. The question is asked, is God dead? And Jesus Christ says, I died, but I did not stay dead. And that is what I want to bring to you. We were talking about it this morning, about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That's what fills our hearts with that assurance and the confidence that no one else can give. I died and I'm alive forevermore, the firstborn of the dead. And he says, I hold the keys of death and of Hades. This risen Christ has control over uh, and authority over death. So what's the response? It's a good thing to ask. What's the response? What did John do? Uh, it could be a good response for us. In verses 10 and 12, I'll read that out to you. I was on the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the trumpet. And then in verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw the seven lampstands, and in the midst, and it goes on. 
So three things. One is in the spirit in verse 10. The John was in the spirit. And I want us to understand that if you want to see the glories of Christ, if you want to know who Christ is, that you cannot do that unless you are in the spirit. The natural man cannot understand things that are spiritual. If among us there's anyone who does not understand what it means to know this God in that spiritual sense, being awoken so that I can see the glories of Christ. Man, today, to talk to somebody, talk to us. That's important. We don't want us to ever forget or ever face the consequence of not knowing who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And verse 12, John turns around. The voice is behind him. He's in, he, as, he is, as he is in the spirit, uh, there's a voice behind him, and he turns around. And I don't know the complete significance, but this is what I see. You see, John may be having these memories of the past as he's thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus says, no, listen, turn around, look into the future. The memories of the past is nothing compared to the hope of the future. And the glories of what is going to be uh, uh, shown to us. Turn around. And then he fell down flat. At his, fell down at his feet as though dead. We read that in verse 17. See, John who enjoyed the most intimate moments with Jesus. The one who leaned on the bosom of Jesus Christ would read... And uh, during the Last Supper, when John views him in glory, he falls down at his feet. It seems like that's about the only thing he can ever do. Fall down at his feet. I want you to behold our God. This is our God. Whose existence has been questioned. Is God dead? They ask but who through death has broken the bands of death and by rising victorious. This is the Jesus Christ I want to talk to you about, the overcomer, the one who appears to John in exile and says, I'm the true witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings. He's the, he's the true witness because he, he shows to us who God is in the truest way as no one else can. And he is the firstborn who, who assures me, the firstborn from the dead, who assures me that he has, ha, he has victory over sorrow, sadness, and even death, that nothing that you and I sometimes grapple with and try to understand, I want you to know the solution is found here. He is the one who is the firstborn from the dead, the one who rose victorious, and that he is the ruler over the earth, over the kings of the earth, and even over every authority that unlawfully oppresses you. It is this Jesus, the overcomer, who says, listen, I'm coming soon to end your exile. He comes to invite you to be with him. Horatius Boner, who is the one who wrote that book, uh, when peace, uh, like a river, attendeth my soul. It is said that every night before he goes to sleep, he would look through the blinds and say, Lord, will it be tonight? 
And every morning when he wakes up, the first thing he does is remove the blind and say, will it be today? You see, the heart of the one who's been touched, who's seen the glories of Christ, longs, as it were, to see more of Christ. And, and, and so those in exile, those in darkness have seen a great light, we read. We have this joy and this confidence that to us, as this book has been written, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we can attest that this is sufficient. Enough confidence, enough assurance that he is coming. And that's the joy. And so let this visual of Jesus be seared in our minds. And the expectation of his soon coming in glory grip our hearts today, tomorrow, until he comes. May his name be glorified. Father, we thank you for your son. As we think about him, Lord, and as we think about what it meant for him, O Holy One, as we think about, Lord, the, the implication of, of sin being laid on him, the sinless one who became sin for us, and yet he, he comes seeking, and he finds us, and he says, I've made you a kingdom and a priest unto God, unto my God and my Father. And who says he's the true witness, the firstborn among the dead, the, the king over all rulers. To him, Lord, as a company of your people, we bring all praise, all honor, all majesty, all glory, and everything that we have and laid at your feet. Be glorified, Lord, in our midst this morning and in this world. Thy will be done on earth, in our midst, in our hearts, in our lives, as it's done in heaven. We thank you that this prayer pleases you and that you will answer it. We offer this in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.